Hello everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Laurel's Legacies, a podcast about Laurel County, Kentucky's history, highlighting its people, places, and events. I'm your host, Dana Estridge, a former journalist turned historian with a passion for local history. I know what you're thinking. History? Boring. Well, hang on a minute. If you've ever read any of the history I've written about, or listened to any of my previous podcasts, or attended one of the programs I've presented about history, you'll realize that the kind of history I'm interested in is anything but boring. See, I fell in love with history in my teens. One of my paternal great-uncles, Benjamin Franklin Hounshell, or Hounshell as some of the family prefer to pronounce it, was the family historian and genealogist of his generation. One of Uncle Ben's sisters was my grandmother, Nola Hounchel Estridge. I often stayed overnight with my grandparents on the weekends when I was in my early teens. Uncle Ben sometimes stopped by for a visit with his sister on Saturday afternoon, and he would share some of the family history he discovered during one of his recent fact-finding trips. See, this was in the 1960s, long before the internet came along. In those days, if you wanted to research family history or genealogy, you had to actually go to the places where the information was kept. Libraries and archives were basically the only resources to find that type of information. So Uncle Ben traveled to Virginia, North Carolina, and other places where his ancestors had lived and looked up information about the family. Not only that, but he also often found the family's old homesteads and visited them, talking to neighbors who still live nearby to find out if their families had any stories about his family. And he would bring the information he discovered back home and talk about it with my grandmother while I sat in the room with them and listened. And some of the stories he would tell, oh my, he liked to dig up the dirt. Who had a child out of wedlock? Who had a run-in with the local sheriff? Who ran off with whose girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife? Who ambushed who in the dead of night from the bushes? He liked to uncover what I call the unexpected, the things no fiction writer could possibly come up with out of their own feeble imaginations. And the way he talked about the stories he uncovered was exciting. It was like listening to someone read an adventure novel. So I guess I learned to love the past because I heard so much about my own family's past at an impressionable young age. And like my great uncle Ben, I like to discover the unexpected and pass along what I find by writing about it, or in this case, podcasting about it. For example, a few years ago, I was searching through old newspapers on microfilm, and I came across something about another great uncle from a different branch of my family that was quite unexpected. I was browsing through old issues of the Sentinel Echo newspaper in the 1930s, looking for something to write about for a blog I was doing at that time for the Laurel County History Museum and Genealogy Center. As I was scanning the headlines in the newspapers from 1935, a familiar name caught my eye. Reuben Brown, who was my maternal great-uncle by marriage. Needless to say, I was interested to know why my then 23-year-old great-uncle would be in a headline on the front page of the local newspaper. So I started reading the article, and I got one of those little unexpected surprises I get so excited about. The news article told about how Reuben Brown, a taxi driver in London, which I knew, had been lured out into the country and had his taxi stolen from him at gunpoint, which I did not know. 
I had never heard this story from anyone in my family. Not only was his taxi stolen, it was taken by three fugitives who had escaped from the state penitentiary in Frankfurt two weeks earlier, on May 12, 1935. There were actually five escaped convicts, but Uncle Reuben only came into contact with three of them. The June 6, 1935 issue of the Sentinel Echo told what happened to my Uncle Reuben. Three men, identified as Eller Robinson, James C. Morris, and James B. Brown, escaped convicts, held up Reuben Brown, the taxi driver, Monday afternoon, June 3rd, on East Highway 80, near the Laurel-Clay County line, commandeered his automobile, carried him six miles, put him out, and sped away towards Manchester. After the auto driven by Brown and owned by Leighton Sutton was taken, Brown had to walk several miles before he could communicate with officers, who followed the fugitives but lost trace of them just beyond McKee in Jackson County. Brown said a telephone message summoned him about 1 o'clock on Monday afternoon to a store 10 miles east of London on the Manchester Road, East Highway 80. And upon arrival there, he picked up two men who said they would pick up two girls a short distance away. Brown stated that when they got to the designated spot, he was ordered to blow his horn twice, and that a man whom he identified as Eller Robinson walked out from the bushes carrying a machine gun and a sack of ammunition and got into his taxi. They drove several miles, Brown asserted, when at Robinson's request, he was let out of the automobile. The other two men, he said, wanted to take him with them. Police found the taxi abandoned between Shelbyville and Louisville the next morning. It had a flat tire, which probably explains why the fugitives left it behind. Well, of course, I had to know more. Who were these fugitives? How did they break out of the state penitentiary? What were they doing in Laurel County, of all places? First, I wanted to know more about who these escaped prisoners were. I knew their names, but what else could I find out about them? Well, as it turns out, quite a lot. What I discovered about the men and their escape from the Kentucky State Penitentiary and their bid for freedom read like a cross between Escape from Alcatraz and The Adventures of Bonnie and Clyde Evading Law Enforcement. Let's start with the three men who commandeered Uncle Reuben and the taxi he was driving. One of the men, Ella Robinson, the one who persuaded the other two fugitives to put Uncle Reuben out of the taxi and leave him behind, was from East Bernstadt in Laurel County. He was 33 years old when he escaped the penitentiary and helped commandeer the taxi my uncle was driving. Robinson had been in trouble with the law since he was in his early 20s at least, possibly earlier. Alcohol was a factor in several of his arrests. And this wasn't his first jailbreak. In November 1924, while in jail at London, Robinson and three other men dug through the jail wall and walked away in broad daylight. They were later captured. In 1925, Robinson was convicted of robbery in the Laurel Circuit Court and sentenced to serve four years in the penitentiary. But in July 1926, Governor Fields commuted his sentence to 18 months. After his release, Robinson was soon in trouble again, but this time he got into deep, deep trouble. On December 7, 1929, Robinson attended a dance at the home of Pete Steele at East Bernstadt. While there, he got involved in an argument that started between a wealthy coal operator named Robert McNeil and another man, which escalated into a general fistfight among several men. 
At some point, more than 20 gunshots were fired, and Robinson allegedly shot 52-year-old McNeil through the heart, killing him instantly. He was the only person hit by a bullet. Apparently, all the men involved in the fight had been drinking. Robinson and six other men were arrested, and some of them, including Robinson, had to be taken to the hospital to have their wounds dressed before they were taken to jail. The newspaper reported that feelings ran rather high at McNeil's death, so Jailer Broughton took Robinson to a jail in another county for safekeeping. Robinson was convicted of McNeil's murder by the Laurel Circuit Court on January 3, 1930. He was sent to the penitentiary on January 5, 1930, to serve a life term for McNeil's murder. As you know, Robinson was the man who persuaded the other two fugitives to let Uncle Reuben go. Did they know each other? I think it's possible, but I'll never know for sure. I'm just glad Robinson was one of the fugitives in the taxi that day. Otherwise, who knows what might have happened to Uncle Reuben. A second man in the taxi, James Boyd Brown, age 31, was sentenced on October 2, 1931, to serve a life sentence for murder of a prison guard in an attempt to escape while serving two three-year terms from Campbell County for grand larceny and storehouse breaking. The third fugitive in the taxi that day was James C. Morris, age 27, who was allegedly the mastermind behind the penitentiary breakout. He had arrived at the penitentiary on September 25, 1931, from Henry County to serve two terms totaling 39 years and a day for bank robbery. He had previously served a seven-year sentence at Eddyville for a Louisville robbery. The other two fugitives, whom my Uncle Reuben did not meet that day, were Frank McDaniels, age 25, who arrived at the penitentiary on March 1, 1933 from Clay County to serve a life term for the murder of Christopher Pittman Stivers, a Manchester police judge, who was shot and killed on April 16, 1932. McDaniels was born at Burning Springs in Clay County. The other man, who was not in the taxi that day, was Edward Sons, age 26, who arrived at the penitentiary on August 14, 1931, from Campbell County to serve two 10-year sentences for robbery. It's surprising to me that McDaniels, who was from Clay County, was not one of the men who stole the taxi in Laurel County that day, since the theft was near the Laurel-Clay County line and only a few miles from Manchester. Anyway, as I researched further into the event, I discovered that the five men who had escaped from the penitentiary on May 12th were all trustees, so they had access to areas of the prison most other prisoners did not. The trustee system was a penitentiary system of discipline and security enforced in parts of the United States until the 1980s, in which designated inmates were given various privileges, abilities, and responsibilities not available to all other inmates. And the five men were armed with a handgun that had somehow been smuggled into the prison. Using the handgun, the five men overpowered two guards and took their guns. They then went to the main office where Morris, who was a cell house clerk, gained entrance to make his report, which was his daily routine, so no one thought anything about what he was doing. Robert Wells, a night guard, tried to resist when he figured out what was going on, but he was slugged over the head with a pistol and rendered unconscious. Apparently, he wasn't badly injured and later recovered. Morris and the other four prisoners overpowered the two guards in the clerical office, locked the two guards and four trustees in the vault, and took the keys to the armory. 
They took two submachine guns, half a dozen revolvers, and ammunition from the armory. They escaped through the office entrance to the prison, hopped inside a blue sedan with Clark County license plates, which authorities thought had been left there for them by an accomplice, and sped away. Shortly after their escape, prison authorities received a report that the men had seized a Scott County automobile near Georgetown. Later reports showed they transferred to a car with Fayette County license plates near Owenton. This led authorities to believe that they were headed for Cincinnati. Immediately after the prison alarm sounded, members of the newly organized State Highway Patrol, prison guards, local police, and all other available law enforcement officers were placed on the trail of the fleeing desperados. I tracked the story until all five fugitives were taken into custody again. I followed the story through gun battles, more stolen vehicles, robberies, police chases, and other thrilling exploits of the escaped convicts. I found out that the five men stole two cars in Woodford County the same night they escaped. Robinson, Morris, and Brown took off in one car, and Sons and McDaniels in the other. Although the five men had decided to stay together until they could escape the state, the two cars became separated, and the trio who stole Uncle Reuben's taxi told police later that they had not seen the other two since the night they escaped. The three fugitives who stole Uncle Reuben's taxi, James C. Morris, Ella Robinson, and James Boyd Brown, were captured on June 11, 1935, in Ashland, Kentucky. An off-duty patrolman named James Lane, who lived in a suburb of Ashland, spotted the three fugitives as they drove past his home about 6.15 that evening, and he telephoned the Ashland police headquarters to alert them. An hour later, the three were captured by four Ashland policemen who found them eating at a restaurant. They were arrested without a shot being fired. Morris and Robinson surrendered without a fight, but Brown struggled with patrolman Edward Delaney until he was subdued with a blow from the butt of a pistol. Today we might call that police brutality, and it probably would have gone viral on the internet. A fourth escapee, Edward Sons, was taken into custody on August 2nd in Manchester. The remaining fugitive, Frank McDaniels, was arrested in Ava, Missouri in early October. He was selling vacuum cleaners door-to-door under the name Carson Baker when he was recognized from a photo in a police magazine by City Marshal Burnham Cummins when McDaniels tried to sell him a vacuum cleaner. Bad luck. But the story of these five men didn't end with their arrest. I wanted to know what happened to them after they were taken into custody again. I knew that they'd be tried on new charges connected with their escape, and I wanted to know how that turned out. Would Uncle Reuben have to testify in one or more of the trials? Would he be involved in what happened to them next? I had to know. So I kept digging, following their court cases to see what happened. On September 21, 1935, a Franklin County grand jury indicted all five men on a charge of armed robbery, which, due to a recently passed state law, carried a penalty ranging from 21 years to the death sentence. If convicted, they could be sentenced to die in the electric chair. Frank McDaniels was still at large at the time. Robinson, Sons, Morris, and McDaniels were also indicted on charges of escaping prison, which carried a maximum one-year sentence. On January 16, 1936, Frank McDaniels, James Morris, and Ella Robinson were sentenced to life in prison when they pleaded guilty to armed robbery. 
The other two, Edward Sons and James Boyd Brown, were each given five-year sentences on robbery charges related to thefts committed during their getaway. Okay, they were all back in prison. They had additional sentences tacked onto the sentences that they were already serving before they broke out. But of course, their stories don't end there. I continued to follow this trail of breadcrumbs and discovered that less than a month after his life sentence, Frank Morris led another prison break from the penitentiary. This time there were four convicts, including Morris, who escaped by overpowering and locking up a guard in the prison hospital at 1 o'clock on the morning of February 7, 1936. They assaulted a second guard at the gate, knocking him unconscious, and commandeered a taxi, which they had called from the prison office. Hmm. I was beginning to see a pattern in Morris's getaway strategies. Fortunately for this taxi driver, Clements Porter, the fugitives took the taxi but left him behind. Shortly after Morris and his companions broke out of the prison, six other convicts made their own bid for freedom that same night. Another prisoner was stabbed to death in the confusion surrounding the two breakouts. Morris and his fellow fugitives stole several cars in an attempt to make a clean getaway, but this time Morris's bid for freedom didn't last very long. He and his three comrades were captured late the following afternoon, 10 miles east of Beattyville. They were at the home of one of the other fugitives, Henry Comer. It took about an hour and a half of tense negotiations between law enforcement and the fugitives, plus appeals from Coomer's family members, but the four escapees eventually surrendered peacefully. Less than a month later, on March 6, 1936, the Frankfurt Penitentiary transferred 36 prisoners to the strongest cell house at the state penitentiary in Eddyville, Kentucky. Described as, quote, the worst of the bunch from Frankfurt, end quote, the 36 prisoners were placed in cell house one, the newest and strongest cell house at the Eddyville Penitentiary. Among those transferred were, you guessed it, Frank Morris, Ella Robinson, Edward Sons, Frank McDaniel, and James Boyd Brown. But again, that's not the end of the story. Sometime between his transfer to Eddyville in early March 1936 and mid-May 1942, Edward Sons received a pardon from the governor and was set free. But old habits are hard to break. After a series of robberies, shootouts with police, and other crimes, in March 1957 in Indianapolis, Indiana, Sons was sentenced to serve between 30 and 75 years in the penitentiary. But he was ill when he was sentenced, and he didn't last long being confined to prison. Two years later, Edward Sons died on March 21, 1959, at the Ohio Penitentiary in Franklin County, Ohio. He was 49 years old. James Boyd Brown died on December 1, 1948 at the Kentucky State Penitentiary in Eddyville, Kentucky of a pulmonary embolism. Frank C. Morris died on April 4, 1994 in Maryville, Tennessee. I was unable to find out when Frank McDaniels died, but I did find out what eventually happened to our Laurel County boy, Eller Robinson, the man who let Uncle Reuben go without being harmed. Robinson was paroled in March 1943 and returned to his native Laurel County. But things did not go well for Robinson, and alcohol apparently played a role in yet another episode in his troubled life. On the evening of October 7, 1944, 
On the evening of October 7, 1944, Robinson and two other men were in a car parked at the side of the road on Highway 25, five miles south of London, in the Ferriston area. State Highway Patrolman Vadis Richardson, age 35, stopped to investigate the parked car at about 9.30 p.m. This was before the Kentucky Highway Patrol was converted to the Kentucky State Police. Richardson got out of his patrol car and approached the parked car on foot, since he was under orders to stop and render aid to any motorist who appeared to be in trouble. As Richardson approached the parked car, Sheriff W.H. Steele drove up and parked behind Richardson's patrol car. With Steele were deputies Lee Bruner and Ed Steele. Before he reached the car, Richardson was shot in the chest with a bullet allegedly fired by Eller Robinson, who was a passenger in the parked car. More shots were fired, and Deputy Bruner was shot in the shoulder. Robinson fled on foot across the field and escaped in the darkness. The other two men in the parked car were taken into custody. The two wounded officers were rushed to the hospital, but Richardson died before they reached the hospital. Bruner's arm was broken by the bullet, but he recovered from his wound. Meanwhile, Robinson walked to the home of Ethel and Otis Cup, his sister and brother-in-law. Otis Cup later told officials that Robinson said to him, quote, I'm into it, and I only have three shells left, so I can't put up a fight, end quote. Cup said Robinson told him where he had hidden some money, then walked into another room of the house and shot himself through the heart. State patrolmen from Harlan, Pineville, Richmond, Frankfurt, Danville, and Winchester arrived in London and conducted a search for Robinson using bloodhounds, but soon received word that Robinson was already dead. Sheriff Harve Steele said that there was a partly consumed bottle of whiskey found in the parked car, and the sheriff thought Robinson probably fired at Richardson because he thought the officer was going to arrest him for parole violation. The article in the October 12, 1944 issue of the Sentinel Echo that detailed Robinson's death mentioned my great-uncle, Reuben Brown, and how Robinson had been involved in stealing his taxi as part of the fugitive's effort to escape all those years ago. I thought somehow it was fitting that Uncle Reuben was mentioned in the article. He had been there near the beginning of Robinson's ill-fated journey through his run-ins with law enforcement. It seemed fitting he was mentioned at the end of Robinson's journey. Uncle Reuben never mentioned any of this to me, and we were pretty close when I was growing up. He and his wife, my great-aunt Martha Eastet Brown, lived right across the street from me, and I often visited them. By the time I found out about this event, Uncle Reuben and Aunt Martha had both been dead for many years. My mother, Martha's niece, was also deceased by then. I asked my dad if he knew about it, and he said he didn't. Now, I don't know about you, but if something that amazing had happened to me, I would have told everyone I knew about it, at least twice, probably more. And knowing me, I would have probably turned it into a book. So I have to wonder why I never heard this amazing episode mentioned by anyone in my family. Had they forgotten about it by the time I was born? Doubtful. Did the family not want to dredge up bad memories of what must have been a very traumatic event for Uncle Reuben? Maybe. But there may have been another reason. Maybe maybe he was ashamed that he'd been taken advantage of. Or maybe he knew Eller Robinson and didn't want to be associated with a known criminal. Or maybe his employer, the taxi's owner, told him never to discuss the event, even with family. 
Reuben was still single at the time. He and Martha married a few months later. Was he trying to downplay what happened because he didn't want to call attention to the episode for the family he was marrying into? Or maybe my journalism background, which often dealt with cases similar to this, has left me jaded and looking for motives where there simply aren't any. Maybe Uncle Reuben thought everyone in the world already knew about it because it was splashed on the front page of the local newspaper, as well as repeated in newspapers across the state, and probably in other states as well. Maybe he was tired of being in the spotlight. Maybe he just wanted to forget about it and put it all behind him, especially since he was starting a new life as a married man. Since all the people involved are now deceased, I guess I'll never know why they apparently didn't want to discuss it. But this unexpected episode just goes to show that no matter how much any historian or genealogist researches their family tree, there's always something unexpected waiting to be discovered. Here's to those unexpected surprises that make research so much fun. This isn't the last unexpected surprise I'm going to bring to you in this podcast. So if you like this episode, please be sure to tune in again next Thursday for another thrilling story from Laurel County's past. And if you did enjoy this episode, please tell your friends about this little podcast and ask them to check it out. Until next week, I'm your host, Dana Estridge. Thanks for stopping by.